Hey, good morning, crowd family, and God bless you all. Hey, listen, we decided to cancel our in-person service today as a precaution. There's a lot of sickness going around. You got colds and the flu, COVID, the variant, Omicron. In fact, some of our staff and their families are sick. So let's keep them and others who are sick in our prayers. Here at Crowd, we want to be safe. We want to be cautious. We want to be wise. Not, not fearful, but safe, cautious, and wise. And, and we're going to get through this, okay? If you believe that, say amen. So we hope and pray to resume in-person service next Sunday the 16th, and we'll keep you posted on that. Also, a friendly reminder that there is no in-person service this Wednesday, though the women will have their, their Bible study on Zoom. So uh, let's pray, and then let's dive into God's Word, okay? Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your, your faithfulness and your goodness and your grace and your love towards us. And we're in some trying times, Lord, a lot of things going on, sickness, Lord, but we, we trust you and we thank you, Lord, and we pray for healing and strength upon those who are sick. Lord, keep our church safe, Father, Lord Jesus. And Father, just speak to our hearts today. Encourage us through your word. Father, I decrease that you would increase. Lord, I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Someone say amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to cover the whole chapter today. We're now in part five of our series, From the Heart, say, From the Heart. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, that's chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And you might remember I gave you three points from the text. And the first point was Paul's concern. Everyone say that, Paul's concern. And Paul heads to Troas to preach the gospel. There was an open door for Paul to preach the gospel there. And also in anticipation of meeting up with Titus. And Paul was anxious to hear a report from Titus regarding the well-being of the church in Corinth. But when Paul got there, Titus wasn't there. And and it deeply troubled Paul's heart. He was troubled in, in spirit. It caused great concern. In fact, Paul was so troubled that he left an open door in Troas to go find Titus in Macedonia. And Paul felt more compelled to find Titus than to minister, uh, to evangelize in Troas. And Paul's concern, I love this about Paul, his concern, uh, Paul's concern as a pastor overcame his concern as an evangelist. The second point was Paul's confidence. Say that, Paul's confidence. You see, despite all of Paul's struggles and his challenges and discouragement uh, he faced in ministry, he saw in the midst of it all the faithfulness, say faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, but thanks be to God. I love that. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So what Paul uses here, he uses a military metaphor, and the idea is borrowed from an ancient Roman triumph. If a commanding a commander, excuse me, a commander in chief had victory over the enemy of on foreign soil, and if he killed at least five thousand enemy soldiers and gained new territory for the emperor, then that commander in chief was entitled to a Roman triumph. It was a huge 
huge parade. And the parade would include the commander riding in a golden chariot surrounded by his, his officers. It also included a display of the spoils of battle as well as the captive enemy soldiers. And the point is here, Paul's making here, is that Jesus Christ, our great commander-in-chief, came to foreign soil, the earth, and completely defeated the enemy, Satan. So as believers, we are following, I love this, we are following in Jesus Christ's triumph. Now remember, in the Christian life, we're not fighting for victory. Rather, we are fighting from a position, a position of victory. So there's victory in Jesus. Everyone say that. There's victory in in Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's confidence, and that should be our confidence as well. In verses 15 through 16, Paul still has in mind the Roman, the Roman procession, and perhaps he's thinking of the incense that the priest swung as a general, as a general and his soldiers marched through Rome. And that sweet smell meant victory, but to the captives, that same smell was a fragrance of death. So to the one, it was the sweet scent of triumph. To the other, uh, the, the reminder of imminent death. And this is the same with the gospel. It either melts you to repentance, right, to, to repentance, or it hardens you to greater stubbornness. The third point was Paul's character. Say that, Paul's character. And I want you to look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17, and this, Paul writes, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit, on the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, say sincerity, like men sent from God. So Paul was a man of character. That's what we love about Paul, right? He was a man of character. His motives were clear, and his message was transparent before God. And, and, and Paul wasn't like the others who preached a watered-down gospel. He preached the truth, the Word of God. He didn't preach for personal gain. He didn't preach for financial gain or financial benefit, but for and to the glory of God. Say God. Okay? He, he, he remained passionate. And I love this about him. He remained passionate, passionately excuse me, committed to the word. There were no hidden motives or agendas when Paul preached the word, or in his life for that matter. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is Unveiled and Unfading. Everyone say that. Come on. Unveiled unveiled and unfading. Now, I want to set the stage for the text. I want to set, set the stage for you for the text. Uh, there were some troublemakers known as the Judaizers. Say, say Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish legalists, and they believed that Jesus Christ wasn't enough to save anyone. And they believed that in addition to Jesus, you had to keep certain elements of the law. Uh, keeping the Sabbath, following various foods and ceremonial laws and, and feasts and, and following rules and regulations uh, of the law. It was, it was a works-based religion. I'm going to say that again. It was a works-based religion. Now, I want you to write this down. I'm going to read it to you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes this, Galatians 2, verse 4. And Paul writes, this matter arose because some false, false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Those false believers were trying to make those who had freedom in Christ slaves of the law. 
Well, these Judaizers, by the way, back in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, Paul calls them peddlers of the word. These Judaizers had come to Corinth and apparently were questioning Paul and his ministry to the people of Corinth, questioning the gospel that Paul was preaching. You see, and I want you to follow me here. If the Judaizers could get the Corinthian believers to question the integrity of Paul, then they can get them to question the integrity of the message of the gospel. And that's what they were trying to do. So so to refute the Judaizers and their false doctrine and, and practices, Paul writes about the grace of God, and I love this, the grace of God and the glory of the new covenant. In fact, in the text, you will see that uh, Paul contrasts the ministry of the Old Covenant, speaking of the law, and the ministry of the New Covenant, speaking of grace, proving the superiority of the New Covenant ministry. Two points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, if you're ready, say yes. Point number one is living letters. Write that down, living letters. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. I want you to follow me here, but I want you to notice, first of all, before we read the text, you can sense that Paul is getting a little tired of having to defend himself. And so what Paul does, he cuts right to the chase. Verse 1, we are beginning to commend, excuse me, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And I want to stop there, friends. In Paul's day, it was very common for traveling preachers to carry letters of recommendation with them to let the churches know whether or not they were legitimate. And apparently Paul's enemies, speaking of the Judaizers, had brought some misleading letters of recommendation to the church at Corinth. So Paul shows, listen now, that his letter is far better, that his letter is far better. And Paul's like, hey, do we really, really, come on, do we really need someone to vouch for us to say that we are legitimate? Well, listen to his answer. Verse 2. You, speaking of the Corinthian believers, you yourselves are our letter, written on our our hearts, known and read by everybody. I'm going to read that again. I love that. You, speaking of the Corinthian believers, Yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. Verse 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink. Did you get that? Written not with ink, but with the Spirit, say Spirit, of the living God. Now I want to stop there. Paul's like, I don't need those letters of recommendation. I don't need them. In other words, what he's saying is, I have living letters, your lives. Your lives are my letters of recommendation. Just just look at how, what Paul's saying is, just look at how so many of you have turned, listen now, to Christ from idolatry. Our letter of recommendation, what Paul is saying, it's you. It's you, Corinthian believers. It's you. It's your changed lives. Your lives give evidence, your lives give proof of your salvation. Proof, evidence that the Spirit of the living God lives inside of you. And what Paul's driving at is you guys, okay, you guys, Corinthian believers, 
are the evidence. You guys are the testimony of my apostleship. Evidence, but Paul's saying evidence that I am truly called of God. You see, the only letter Paul needed in Corinth, you got to get this, the only letter Paul needed in Corinth was the Corinthian fellowship, the Corinthian believers. Now I want to say this. Paul is not saying, I made you the Christians you are. He's not saying that. Rather, God used me to make you the Christians you are. Warren Wiersbe, Pastor Warren Wiersbe, who's now with the Lord, said this. The Corinthian believers are lovingly written on Paul's heart, and the Spirit of God had written the truth on their hearts, making them living letters of Christ. I'm going to read that again. The Corinthian believers were lovingly written on Paul's heart, and the Spirit of God had written the truth on their hearts. Listen to what he says. Making them living letters of Christ. So you ready for the lesson? Here's the lesson. Lesson is this. You are, listen, if you're saved, you are a living letter. Say, I'm a living letter. Come on, you are a living letter. Therefore, listen now, you are the only Bible someone may ever read. Get that? Therefore, you are the only Bible someone may ever read. Now, I want you to get this. The best way to promote Jesus is your life. The best way to promote Jesus is your life. It's living for him. And hopefully you are influencing non-believers around you by living for Jesus. Listen, friends, listen. You will either be drawing people to Jesus or, listen now, pushing them away from Jesus by the way you live. Every single believer, that's you now, listen now, every single believer is an open living letter for Jesus, is an advertisement for Christianity. Follow me here. We judge a store by the quality of goods they sell, right? We judge a, a craftsman on his quality of work. We, we judge a restaurant by the quality of food they serve. We judge a church by the kind of Christians it produces. Therefore, listen now, therefore, the world judges Christ by his followers. Did you get that? Someone said this, the greatest handicap, listen, the greatest handicap the church has is the unsatisfactory lives of professing Christians. Wow. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, if you're saved, say amen. Every single day, when you and I step out into our community, wherever we go, we are open, living letters. That's what we are, friends. Advertisements for Christ and his church. So question, listen now, question. Are we good advertisements for Christ or bad advertisements for Christ? Well, it depends on how you live, your lifestyle poem reads like this, you are writing a gospel, a chapter every day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you? Huh. Question. If I was to ask you to prove your worth as a Christian, could you produce several people whose lives, listen now, whose lives had been changed for the better because of your lifestyle. For the better because of your example. Huh? Think about that. Listen, listen, church. 
We ought to be living examples of what Jesus Christ can do in a person's life. Now let's, let's, let's read the last part of verse 3. And, 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 and as, before we read it, I want you to notice the contrast between the old law and the New Testament grace. Between the old law, Old Testament law, and, and the New Testament grace. And Paul writes, not on tablets of stone, speaking of the ten commandments, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, this is what Jesus Christ had done. He wrote his message upon the Corinthians' hearts through his servant Paul. Not, not with fading ink, but with his, and I love this, with his permanent marker, the Holy Spirit. Not on tablets of stone as they were first, as they were first written, but on the tablet of their hearts. I want you to follow me here. The law the Old Covenant, was external. I'll say it again. The law of the Old Covenant was external. You could hold the tablets of stones in your hands your whole life, and it could never change your life. Uh, the New Testament ministry, the New Covenant, is internal. Got that? The Old Covenant, external. The New Covenant, internal. It's the Spirit of the living God living inside of you living inside of you, changing you, and empowering you. Someone say amen. You see, the work of Paul's ministry is not external like the letters of the law. Instead, it's written by the Spirit of the living God, friends, on tablets of flesh. It's internal in the heart. And we can correlate this with uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. Write that down, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, and also Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Again, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I'm going to read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Love it. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Listen to what he says. I will give you a new heart. There it is and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart. Listen, I will, I will remove from you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Someone say amen. Verses four through six. Stay with me now. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. I want to stop there. Paul not only served God, but he served before God. Listen, every aspect of Paul's ministry was observed by the all-seeing eye of God. Therefore, Paul wasn't concerned with pleasing those who demanded more credentials. He was determined to please the one who called him and the one who closely watched his life. I also want to point out that the phrase through Christ, it's such confidence as this is ours through Christ, say through Christ, that phrase through Christ indicates the source of Paul's confidence. We have confidence in Christ. Verse 5, not that we are competent or sufficient in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence, got it? Our sufficiency comes from God. You see, Paul's enemies valued worldly ability more than the sufficiency that comes from God alone. Verse 6, 
He has made us competent, sufficient, as ministers of a new covenant. There it is. New covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Got that? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit, say Spirit, gives life. Do you remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you. It says, And so it was with me, brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, love this, I'm going to read it again. Okay, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Got that? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul was no powerful orator. He wasn't, friends. Nor did he have a charismatic personality. In fact, friends, it's, history tells us that he was not even attractive. Okay? He had a hooked nose, he was short, and he was bow-legged. In fact, in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul's enemies, enemy, excuse me, enemies said of him, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Listen, what drew people to Jesus when Paul spoke was the pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't his personality, okay? It wasn't his smarts. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was sufficient in God. Here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? The lesson is this. God is all we need. Everyone say that. God is all we need. That very truth. Listen now. God is all we need. That very truth is key to the Christian life. Now listen, friends. Whether we're talking about standing strong and victory in the, in the battle, whether we're talking about overcoming and, and, and enduring trials or being a vessel that God uses, the key is the all-sufficiency of God. Say that, the all-sufficiency of God. He's El Shaddai, okay, the all-sufficient one. Now, 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 now get this. When, when you recognize your inability and your insufficiency, that's a good thing. As a Christian, listen now, when you recognize your inability and insufficiency, that's a good thing because what that does is it has a way of forcing you, me, you and I, us, to lean upon God for his strength. Listen, no one, please listen, no one is sufficient in themselves to minister to the hearts of people. No one. Now, friends, I gotta tell you, I do my due diligence in studying God's word to give you good, solid food, but no matter how much I study, no matter how much I study, my preaching is useless and it's powerless without God's strength working in and through my life. My sufficiency only comes from God. I can't do this on my own strength. I can't do this, you know, in my own creativeness. No, no, no. My sufficiency only comes from God. 
And that's why when I, I pray in my prayers and when I preach the word of God, I pray I decrease that you may increase. I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do will be thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. That's why I pray that prayer. Can't do it on my own. I need God. My su- sufficiency is in Him. Vance Havner said this, Our weakness and God's strength form an unbeatable combination. Gosh, I love that. Oswald Chambers said this, God can achieve His purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their, because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies, okay? He, choose and, he chooses and used somebodies only when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Got that? He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Someone said this, and I love it. Without God, our week would be sin day, morn day, tears day, waste day, thirst day, fright day, and shatter day. And remember, seven days without God make one week. That's W-E-A-K. <laughs> love that. Let's go back to the end of verse 6 and and look at another contrast between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace. It says, for the letter kills. Did you get that? For the letter kills. The letter represents, and you've got to get this right. We know this right. The letter represents the law of Moses. The law kills by making us aware of our sin. That's why it kills. It makes us aware of our sin. The purpose of the law was to point out sin, not solve it. If you got that, say, got it. Write this down, Romans 3, 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious conscious, of our sin. Then Paul writes, But the letter gives life. So you have the letter kills. It makes us aware of our sin. That's what it means, the letter kills. Then he says, But the Spirit gives life. This is new life in Christ. And the bottom line is this, friends, trying to be saved by keeping the Old Testament laws will end in death. Only by trusting Jesus Christ, say that, only by trusting Jesus Christ can you receive, excuse me, receive eternal life. That's the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Say living letters. Point number two is lasting glory. I love that. Say that, lasting glory. Write that down, lasting glory. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me. You're still with me, say amen. And Paul writes, Now if the ministry that brought death, in other words, it slays us as guilty sinners before God, right, exposes our sin. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, speaking of the Ten Commandments, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Now I want to stop there. God's work through Moses in the law had a sense of glory about it. There was a glory about Moses, about uh, the, the God's work through Moses in the law. I mean, you could see it demonstrated in Exodus chapter 34, 
Write that down, Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. And you could see it demonstrated when Moses would come from having been in God's presence and his face glowed, right? His face glowed. But the glow on Moses' face didn't last. It faded away. And in the same way, the glory of the law, what Paul's driving at here, the glory of the law, the glory of the law also fades. Got it? So let's read on. Verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Did you get that? Will not the ministry of the Spirit even be more glorious than you coveted? Verse 9. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Gosh, I love that. Verse 10. For what is glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Verse 11. And if, and, if it what, and if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Isn't that awesome? Which lasts? So, so there's another contrast between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace, and it's from fading glory to lasting glory. Write that down. From fading glory. Glory to lasting glory. The glory of the law, like the glow on Moses' face, was not permanent. Got it? I'm going to say it again. The glory of the law, like the glow on Moses' face, was not permanent. The new covenant of Jesus is permanent. It's permanent. It's more powerful. It's more beautiful. And it's inward. Got it? Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope. Say, say hope. And that's speaking of the hope that we have in Jesus that will never fade away. It's more glorious than Moses. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Did you get that? We are very bold. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? The lesson is this. Here we go. Holy boldness. Write that down. Holy boldness. Holy boldness. That's the lesson. Listen, the new covenant which will not fade or pass away, provides Paul's hope. And what it does, it fueled, it fueled his boldness. It fueled his boldness. Paul's not at all ashamed to stand before the world and proclaim, preach the gospel with boldness. And friends, you and I as believers should have the same, that same boldness. Be bold. We need to be bold in our witness, not bullies, in our witnessing, but bold in our witness. We need to share the gospel openly, freely, and boldly. There are some folks in your life today, you know them, they need to hear the gospel. And pray that God would open up those God moments for you to pray, excuse me, to preach, to share the gospel to the lost. Holy boldness. Verse 13, if you're still with me, say amen. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Listen, when you read Exodus, you think that Moses was putting a veil on his face so people wouldn't be afraid to look at him or to talk to him. But what Paul says, Paul says the reason Moses covered his face was so that the people wouldn't see that the glow-in-the-dark effects, special effects, on Moses' face didn't last. 
And you know, even today, many Jewish people cannot see that the Mosaic Covenant is temporary and that its glory fades. Now, by contrast, Paul needs no veil, right? Text says, we need no veil for the glory of the new covenant ministry doesn't fade away. Someone say amen to that. Verse 14, but their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ it is taken away. And I want you to follow me here. The Jews took this practice of Moses, covered himself with a veil, and transferred it into their worship. Got it? Transferred that into their worship. And whenever they would read from God's word, they would cover themselves with a veil or with a shawl, and they did this out of fear and respect for God's word. Well, here, Paul refers to this practice, but what Paul does, Paul develops it to say that not only is there a veil on their head, but also, listen now, a veil over their hearts as well. Their hearts are blinded to the truth of Jesus being the Messiah. Did you guys get that? But when a person, Paul says, when a person turns to Jesus, that veil is removed. Got it? Verses 15 through 16. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. So to this day, the Jews, right, the Jews still have an invisible spiritual veil coming between them and the truth. They cannot see that the old covenant fades. They're blinded to that. Verse 16, but whenever anyone, speaking of anyone, Jew or Gentile, anyone, Jew or Gentile, turns, I love this, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And it's taken away in who? In Jesus Christ, the new covenant. Got it? The new covenant. Covenant. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. Now I'm going to read that again. Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is a, a declaration. Listen now. This is a declaration of the deity of the Holy Spirit. He is God. Got it? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Someone say freedom. Come on, say freedom. Now one more contrast between the Old Testament law and, and New Testament grace. Here, here we go. Here, here's, here's the contrast. From bondage, from bondage to freedom. Someone say that. From bondage to freedom. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on. If you're saved, say amen. You said amen. If you're saved, we have freedom. Listen now. Get this now. We have freedom from the judgment, the yoke, and the condemnation of the law. The law has no power, no power to condemn us any longer. Good place to say amen. Write this down, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I love that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves, this is what he says, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of Bondage, a yoke of slavery, referring to the old law. So we are free. Listen now what Paul's saying. We are free from legalistic religious practices. Got it? But it also means that we are now no longer in bondage and slavery to sin either. Or no longer in bondage, listen now, 
to be ruled by our flesh. And you'll find that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Now, I want to say this because I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. We as believers, we are free from sin, not free to sin. Got it? This is not, our freedom is not a license to sin and to live any way we want to live. No, no, we are free from sin, not free to sin. If you got it, say, say got it. Verse 18, if you're still with me, say amen. Verse 18, and we, this is what he says, and we who with unveiled faces. Unveiled faces is speaking of those who are saved. If you're saved, say amen. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Did you get that? We all ref reflect the Lord's glory. The New American Standard Bible renders it like this. Beholding as in a mirror, say mirror, the glory of the Lord. Well, the word mirror there, mirror, is a symbol of God's word. Beholding as in a mirror, the word of God, the glory of of the Lord. So, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory, the Lord's glory, or beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, here we go, here we go, are being transformed, love that, into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Your Bibles might render it, render it as from glory to glory. Say from glory to to glory. In other words, the first glory is that of the old covenant, and the second glory is that of the new covenant. The new covenant far surpasses that of the old covenant. Got it? From glory to glory. And he says, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Listen, the law didn't work a transformation. It didn't do that. Rather, it worked a condemnation. It only pointed out sin. That's all it did was point out our sin. Here in the text, we have the true, true meaning of transformation, and that is sanctification and growing in grace. So that being said, question, how long does it take to become a Christian? Think about that. How long does it take to become a Christian? I'll tell you how long. In a moment, justification, and over a lifetime, sanctification. Write that down. Write that down. In a moment, justification. We are justified. And over a lifetime, sanctification. Heaven never hangs a, a sign that says overnight transformations inquire within. God doesn't do, listen now, overnight makeovers. He doesn't, friends. But over, over lifetime transformations. It's a lifelong transformation whose end is glorification. He is constantly working on our lives to transform us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? And it's not overnight. It continues, it continues. And we will not be completely like Christ until we get to be with him in heaven. Amen? Here's a lesson. You ready for the lesson? Here's a lesson. Draw near to Jesus. I love that. Say that. Draw near to to Jesus. Listen, the more that you and I look upon Jesus, the more that we draw near to him through his word, speaking of God's word, God's mirror, the more that we draw near to him through his word, the mirror, the more we resemble him. 
listen, listen, as we daily, and hopefully, yeah, yeah, daily spend time in the Word, fellowshipping with Jesus, our lives are transformed more into His image. And this is how you can know someone is really spending time with Jesus. They're being transformed into the same image. That's how you know. That's how you know. When you see someone, you say, man, they, boy, they're really living and, and, and walking like Jesus. They're, they're just displaying this lifestyle of, of Christ's likeness. You know they spent time with Jesus. You see people, when the people of God look into the Word of God and see the glory of God, the Spirit of God transforms them, transforms them to be like the Son of God. People should see Jesus' reflection in us. Should. And hopefully that you and I were spending time drawing near to him through the word, through prayer, through worship, seeking his face to become more and more like him. One lesson, one more lesson, we're going to close with this, okay? Are you ready? Here's the lesson, last lesson, here it goes. Real Christianity works. Write that down. Real Christianity works. I said real. Real Christianity works. Why? Because real Christianity changes us. It changes us and makes us more like Jesus, our hope that will never, never, never fade away. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. There was so much to learn today, so much application. And Father, we are so thankful that we live according to the new covenant. Our hope, Jesus, grace, not by works, but by grace. That we live our lives by grace. Thank you, Lord for your love and your mercy towards us. And might we be, as believers, living letters amongst those around us that they might see Jesus in us, our hope that never, never fades away. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, God bless you all. And man, I just hope to see you next week. Take care. Be safe. Love you.